As I read the 48th Psalm, there's a question that's going around in my mind. The psalmist begins by saying, Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. And the question in my mind is, is God truly worthy of our praise? Now, I know we would tend to say, if we're followers of Jesus, that, well, yes, of course. But is that really what we believe? Do we really believe deep in our hearts where we live, deep in the deepest resources of our being, in how we live our daily lives, is God really worthy to be praised? When life takes turns that we wish it didn't, is God worthy of our praise? When God frustrates us because he doesn't do what we want him to do in the, with the speed that we want him to do it, is God worthy of our praise? When we look around at this world and we see so much of it falling to pieces, is God really worthy of our praise? What fascinates me is that when we read the 48th Psalm and this question sort of is lingering there under the surface of what the psalmist, how the psalmist begins, his answer is, as we would expect, yes, of course, God is worthy of praise. We wouldn't expect anything less than that. But the reason God is worthy of praise sort of surprises me. Because he says, he talks about, he connects God's praise and God's worthiness to be praised with the fact that God dwells in Zion. God dwells in Jerusalem. God dwells in this great city. And we scratch our heads and say, what does that have to do with God being praised? What we would expect the psalmist to say is, God is worthy of praise because he has done this or he has done that. Or he's done that. And the psalmist says God's worthy of praise because he dwells in the city. Why is that so significant? Now you understand that Jerusalem is, when David says, let's make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, it's a, it's a shrewd political move. From the very beginning of Israel inhabiting the land of Canaan, they have been sort of divided by uh, tribal groupings. And, and it ends up later on that they end up dividing completely in these tribal groupings. But even already, they are divided into the tribes that are more in the north and the tribes that are more in the south. And what's interesting is that even at this point, when, when David becomes king, there is not this unified sense of the nation. And so David picks Jerusalem that's right in the middle. There is none of the tribes in the south and none of the tribes in the north can say that's our city. And then it becomes very territorial to one group or the other. It's right in the middle. No one really lays claim to it. And so it can become this neutral place that both groupings can connect with. And David uses that city to unify all of the tribes into one. 
Now, what's also interesting to me is that when you look around the ancient world, lots of cities have gods. In fact, it's not uncommon for a city to say, okay, people to say, let's establish the city. And once they establish the city, they say, now, what would be, what would be the best choice for our God? Let's pick one. And he'll protect us and he'll be our God that we worship. But here, David says, we have a God and we're going to, we're going to establish this place as the center. This is where the ark is going to be. This is going to be the central place of worship, ultimately where the tabernacle and the temple are. And God says, yeah, okay, that's going to be my place. It's not that the people come and say, look, God, we're so great, so you ought to come and live with us because we deserve it. God looks at Israel and says, you guys are some of the most undeserving people I can imagine. But I've chosen you, and I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your city. God voluntarily comes to Israel and says, I am going to dwell in time and space. I'm going to come and live among you. Does he live throughout the whole world? Yes. When he says he lives in the holy city, it doesn't mean that that's the only place God dwells. God is not limited by time and space. But God does choose to reside in time and space. And it's one of the most ludicrous things in the world to say that the great God of all the universe, who's created everything, who, is, who has no boundaries at all to his nature, says, I'm going to connect myself in this place. Because I want to be with these people. I want to know them. I want them to know me. I want to have relationship with them. And the psalmist says, that's why we praise God. Because this God wants to come and live among us. He wants to be connected with us. And what we find here is that the God who who is... Beyond space and time, inhabits space and time. And it's an amazing thing to consider. But the psalmist goes on to say, because God dwells in this place, he protects us from our enemies. When you read this this part of verses 4 to 7... And he talks about how the enemies came and they, and they, they came to, to attack the city and, and they ran. They turned tail and ran because they looked at what God had done and that God was there. And, I, and he says that they felt the pain of a woman in childbirth. And when I read that, I, I just, it's, it's got to be one of these amusing parts of scripture that sometimes goes over our heads. But stop and think about it. These are ruthless warriors coming to attack the city of Israel. And the psalmist says, they're like women in labor. Now, when I was a kid and we really wanted to hurt somebody, one of our friends, you know, we would call them a sissy. And you almost get the sense that the psalmist is saying to them, you warriors think you're so great. You're nothing. You, you, you've got nothing here. We don't know exactly the context of this psalm. It doesn't tell us. But it makes me think about 1 Kings 19 when Assyria is, has surrounded Israel, surrounded uh, Jerusalem. And they are preparing to attack Jerusalem. And they're sending all kinds of threats against King Hezekiah. And the people come together and they pray for God to deliver them. And the next morning, they go out to the camp. And the, the thousands of Assyrian soldiers have vanished disappeared 
Because God came and scared the living daylights out of them. And they ran back home. Israel didn't do anything. They didn't fight. They didn't take up a sword. Nothing they did made that happen. It was God coming and scaring them to death. And they ran. And I sort of have that same image of the psalmist telling us this. Now granted... When God delivers his people, it doesn't mean he always rescues us. It doesn't mean that he eliminates all the problems from our lives. Not by any means. What it means is that the God who is beyond time and space, yet comes and inhabits space, is victorious. The Psalms are always an intersection of what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. And this psalm is both a description of what God's done in the past and a vision of what God's going to do in the future when the kingdom is established and God comes with all of his glory and makes everything, as N.T. Wright says, he sets everything to rights. Everything is made back to what he created it to be and beyond. And we see a glimpse of that. But the bottom line is, God is in control. And no matter what it looks like in our world, no matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult the problems are, no matter how much pressure God's people feel against them, the one thing we know is that God is in control. God has conquered all the enemies. We may not be able to see it quite yet, but it's the foundation of everything we believe. It's why we're followers of God. There's there's no, it's not hanging in the balance We don't feel the pressure of the enemy against God and his people and wonder, I wonder if God can handle this. We haven't looked back and read all the great things God's done in scripture. And then, but we wonder, is is God past his prime? Can can he still handle this stuff? Has has it gotten a little bit too much? I've been watching Wimbledon, you know, tennis has been going on. And, and, you know, some of the great players, they're, they're inching near the end of their career. And they look a lot more vulnerable. And sometimes I think we may have that vision of God. No, God, yeah, he did it in the past. But, you know, he he was in his prime in the past. But, you know, now I don't know if he can handle all this. He can handle it. Our God who, he says, does not change, he does not grow old, he does not grow weary, he can handle it. He has conquered the enemies. He wins. You read to the, get to the end of the book, you read the last page, God wins. And that's the foundation of our faith. Even when the pressure is mounting against us, even when the opposition is coming, even when we look around the world and we scratch our heads and think, really? Boy, it doesn't seem like it. God is in control. But it doesn't mean that God will always save his people from hardship or difficulties or pain or struggles. In fact, the very fact that we are God's people is going to mean there's going to be opposition just naturally coming against us because we live in this world that is opposed to God. But one of the things that happens when the opposition comes is we get a chance to see God at work. You look at verse 8, and and the writer of verse 8 says, in essence, we heard all about what God has done in the past, Now, we've seen it. We've experienced it. 
There's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a big difference between knowing about something has happened and actually being in the middle of it happening. I grew up in southern Indiana. We don't have many snow-capped mountains in southern Indiana. All right, we have none. We have a little hill out there and we go, ooh, look at that mountain. I'd read about snow-capped mountains. I'd never seen them. I'd never experienced it. They seemed pretty awesome to me. But, you know, it was all theory until we moved to Oregon. And I've told you about this before. The first time we were driving down the Columbia River Gorge, there are... It's hard to describe some of the scenes in the Pacific Northwest if you've never been there. But they are some of the most awe-inspiring vistas that you will ever experience. And one of those is driving along the Columbia River Gorge. And you come around this curve and right in front of you is Mount Hood. I mean, even as I'm talking to you about it, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. And I, I mean, there are times, I've made that trip dozens of times. And every time, it... it just does something to me. I, I remember one time I almost had to pull off the side of the road because it, I was just so inspired. I couldn't take my eyes off of this mountain instead of put, keeping them on the road. And all of a sudden I began to feel something of what it is to view a snow-capped mountain and all of the majestic nature of it. And there is something about being in a place in life where we get to experience who God is. And I, sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons we don't have the kinds of experiences with God that other people do is because we're, we're so enamored with life being easy. You know, we want life to be no problems, no struggles, no difficulties. And in fact, quite frankly, and I'll also, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. I get a little frustrated with God when I have to face some difficult things. But when you read through the scriptures, when you read through the, the stories of people through the ages, when you read through the stories of the church today, some of the most amazing things are happening in the places where there is the most pressure and the most opposition. Someone from the Lilius Trotter Institute that has begun here in Houghton in ministry to Muslims handed me a little booklet a few weeks ago about uh, praying 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. And as I'm using that as a prayer guide every day, one of the things that keeps coming up is that there, there are these miracles that happen and it's changing people's lives. People in the Muslim world see dreams and visions and, and these astounding miracles happen. And I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, why don't those happen to us? And I wonder if part of it is because they're in the middle of pressure. They're in the middle of some things that we have a hard time comprehending and the miraculous work of God in those circumstances changes things for people. And I suspect for us, we might not pay that much attention to it. I know for myself, my prayer is typically, Lord, don't let me face any difficulties. And then I wonder, how come we don't see any miracles? Miracles happen because there are difficulties. If you don't feel the need to be rescued... You won't be rescued. Earlier this week, uh, 
Rihanna Austin, Pastor Kevin and Cindy's daughter. She's in Zambia working there as a nurse intern this summer. And I read an email that she sent. And she talked about how it's been a great experience, but how there have been some difficulties. But one of the things that grabbed my attention was she said something to the effect that because of the difficulties I'm facing, the language barriers, just the struggles of being in Zambia and seeing all the stuff people go through, being alone by myself, she said, it's really just me and God. And I'm having to rely on God so much more than I would have otherwise. And I sense God working in me because I'm in this place. And I'm learning some lessons about life and about myself and about God that I'm not sure I would have learned if I, hadn't, if I wasn't here. And maybe, maybe the calling of God on us that would change how we praise God and how we see God and, and how God is deserving of our praise might happen if we we're much more willing to put ourselves in places where God could prove himself to us. Now, I don't mean we go around looking for trouble. You know, there's an old Bill Cosby thing where he learned uh, karate or judo, and and he was so confident of himself, he said he walked down alleys with $20 bills hanging out of his pockets just waiting for someone to attack him. That's not what we're doing. We're not going around saying, Lord, help me to find the most dangerous, difficult circumstance I can. The truth of the matter is, if we are committed to following God and wanting what God wants, trouble will find us well enough. And in those moments, instead of of complaining that God hasn't spared us from difficulties, to say, Lord, what are you going to do here? How are you going to teach me? What are you going to do in me? Reveal yourself. And let me know you. If our hearts are really tuned to praising God, then we begin to see God in a different light when trouble comes. Because when our, when, our, when our mindset is about trying to protect ourselves, trying to make life easy for ourselves, we have a tendency to whine and complain when difficulty arises. But if our focus is on God and saying, Lord, I'm just looking for every way I can to praise you and to glorify you and to honor you, then when difficulty comes, we begin to see him far more clearly involved in circumstances than we would have otherwise. The end result of this psalm, he says, is that ultimately it's about telling next generations who God is. I'm intrigued by verses 12 and 13 because he he says, you know, look around the city. Check it out. It's almost like he's saying, look, go kick some tires. You know, go, go, go in the basement. Do a little digging. Look around. There's no secrets here. There's nothing here that I'm hiding from you. You look around and you tell me where anything in my kingdom has a flaw. You tell me if you see anything about, about how, how my kingdom is established that's less than what it ought to be. You look around. And once you've discovered how secure and safe and, and right my kingdom is, then you, there'll be something in you that bubbles up to say, I want everybody else to know that. 
I want everyone else to know who God is and what God has done. And we start talking to other people about it. We start describing it to them. And who are these next generations that we describe it to? Well, I think it's certainly people who don't know. It's certainly people in the world who've never heard of Christ. We we owe it to them to know Christ in their life so that they can experience the joy of, of Christ. He says in verses 9, 10, 11, he talks about how we ponder the the. The Hebrew word is chesed. It's hard to describe it. Often it's talked about unfailing love or, or steadfast, his, his kindness, his, his, his goodness. It, it's hard to pin it down. It's such a rich word. It, it is the fact that maybe it's like this. God always does the right thing in the right way at the right time. And he never falters from that. God is always loving, always good. Everything that God does, even if it looks like punishment, what is motivating it and behind it is the goodness of God. And he said, you, you begin to ponder that and, and you want to tell people about it. And he talks about rejoicing in justice, in God's judgments that are always right and good and true. This is our God. This is what we want to tell people. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we get the gospel mixed up with our, the social norms that we think are a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And they, we begin crossing lines and, and we begin equating these specific things that we think are, are, are important. And they probably are important, but they're not the gospel necessarily. I, I remember hearing not too long ago, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago of... Stories about missionaries going different places of the world in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And particularly missionaries from some more conservative churches like ours. And and going into these places and sharing the gospel. But along with sharing the gospel, they also told people that the gospel is really tied up into some of the, the western ways in which we think. And so... There was a lot of talk, not just about who Jesus is and and his saving grace in our lives, but also about the way we dress and the kinds of things that we do and don't do and the rules and regulations that were part of our culture. And what ended up happening in, then in the 80s and 90s, when new missionaries were going to these places, the, the, the people of those nations were saying, we're not comfortable with these missionaries because they don't believe and practice those same things anymore. And these things we were taught were the gospel. That you dress a certain way and, and these kinds of things you do and don't do. And these missionaries go to movies. And these missionaries don't dress the way we think they should dress. And these missionaries uh, go out and, and have fun on Sunday. And we do all these things that we were told that you're not supposed to do. And they're rejecting these missionaries. And sometimes it's so easy to, to cross over and to think that it's the same, but it's not. So I, I think what we have to figure out is how do we communicate the gospel to people who don't know the gospel? That's what I love about Royal Family Kids Camp. I think Royal Family does an awesome job of sharing the gospel in a way that these young people can get. You saw in the video all the wild and crazy things that were going on. That's a big part of camp. Because that connects with these children. 
And they need to know that, that Jesus is about every part of their life. And that Jesus is probably bigger than the image they have in their head of Jesus. And the whole point of camp is saying we want you to, to see Jesus in a way that you can understand, that you can grasp. And we are called to do that same thing. But it's not just for people out there who don't know. I suspect when you think about next generation, I think that means our children and our youth who are in here. I think one of our first callings is about what we're doing with our own children, our own youth. How are we helping them encounter the gospel in a way that they can hear? And that may be different than the way that we want them to hear it. One of the things we talk about in, in preaching classes is there is a difference between saying what people need to hear and saying what we want to say. It's not the same. And if we're going to share the gospel with people, if we're going to help people grasp who God is, we've got to say it in a way that people can grasp. And that may mean it has a bearing on what we do when we gather for worship on Sundays. It may mean it has a bearing on the scripture translation that we use. It may have a bearing on on how we talk about Jesus the kind of music we do, what our classes look like. Because our goal is not, we want to make sure people, uh, that people learn the same way we learned. Our goal is, we want to connect the gospel to people so they can hear it. I mean, is that what Jesus does? What God does with the Israelites all the time? And Jesus, he tells stories and parables. And, and who opposes him the most? The people who have heard it over and over and over and over again. And one of the reasons they get upset with Jesus is because he's not telling it the right way. He's not saying it the right way. He's not telling the stories the right way. But Jesus' goal is to help people connect the gospel in a way that they can hear and understand. And that's our calling too. And if our focus is really on praising God, that he is our focus, he's the goal, he's everything that all that we do is about, then we're much more interested in how can people know him the way we know him rather than how can people think about him the way we think about him. And so it's not so much we want people to think the way we think, we want people to think the way God thinks and see things the way God sees them and hear things the way God says them. You come to verse 14 and the psalmist says, after he's describing all of this, going through all this, he says, this is our God. This is our God. And he is with us, guiding us, leading us forever. Is God worthy of praise? The psalmist says yes. Understanding that praise is not just what we say with our mouths, what we sing with our mouths. Praising God is about all of our lives. Praising God is not just what we do on Sunday morning, as important as that is. It's what we do when we leave here. And one of the things that we... We often ask the catechism class uh, when we meet with them and talk about the church. Is we, one of the questions we ask them is, where is the church on Tuesday? 
And they look at us with a very confused expression. Does somebody pick up the building and move it? It's right here. It's always right here. And of course, the point is, the church is where we are. And the witness that we have is not just what we do here on Sunday. It's what we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of the week. And wherever we go, in our homes and places where we work and out where we are around. It's all about praising God. And the God who has become one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. Wants to fill us. And change us and transform us so that wherever we go and whatever we do, our lives are are a sacrifice of praise to God. And we want God's words to be our words. God's thoughts to be our thoughts. The way God treats other people, that's how we want to treat people. The way God thinks about other people, that's how we want to think about other people. That's what it means to praise God, to live a life of praise to God. And it's through that kind of life that other people see the joy of Christ in us. They see the transforming power of Christ in us and say, that's what I want. I want that too. And as people come to know Christ, more and more praise is offered to God. So is God worthy of our praise? The psalmist says, definitely yes. What are our, what are our lives declaring? That we trust him enough that he is worthy to be praised. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the work that you've done in our lives and what you want to do through us in this world. Father, may our lips, our minds, our actions, our attitudes, everything about us be a sacrifice, an offering of praise to you that we might know you and that others might know you too. Through Christ we pray. Amen.